Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is Season 2 of Double Blind. We've missed you over the past six months, and we are so excited to bring you some brand new stories from the world of science. Coming up on today's episode, Starshot, tiny laser-powered spaceships, and high-velocity development, the race to build the Hyperloop. Okay, Lucas, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Jesse. Uh, So just a few days ago, actually, um, a company put a sled on a track in Nevada, in the desert, uh, accelerated to about 170 kilometers an hour in just over a second, and then crashed into a pile of sand. Okay, that sounds exciting. Well, it actually is really exciting because this is the first ever public test of something called Hyperloop technology. Aha. Have you heard of that? Oh, yes. Ah, So most people have. So today we're going to deconstruct exactly what that means and whether or not we'll be taking a ride in a Hyperloop in the near future. Okay, exciting. All right. So first of all, let's back up. What is the Hyperloop? So it's something to do with Tesla, right? Exactly. So Elon Musk, who's the CEO of Tesla, the electric car company, and SpaceX, the people who are, you know, landing rockets on barges in the middle of the ocean. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Really impressive. Um, he had this idea for a very high-speed commuter train. Now, when I say very high-speed, I mean very high-speed, uh, up to 1,200 kilometers an hour. <laughs> That's pretty fast. That's pretty fast. So the current fastest train in the world, um, it's called the L0 series uh, of trains in Japan. It's one of those magnetic levitation trains. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, so it goes 603 kilometers an hour. So is that the bullet train that we often hear about? Okay, so like the term the bullet train might refer to a very specific train, which is commonly called the bullet train, which goes about 320 kilometers an hour. So that's half of the record that I'm talking about, the L0 series. Um, But like the term bullet train also is applied to sort of any of these trains that has this, you know, aerodynamic shape and travels on these magnetic rails. Okay, cool. So that bullet train goes 320 kilometers per hour. That was the original one, right? The one you're talking about now, the fastest one goes how fast? Uh, 603. And the Hyperloop goes... 1,200. Okay, so that's a pretty significant jump. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge jump, isn't right. it? So we're talking about trains that levitate on top of electromagnetic tracks. Kind of like taking two magnets and pushing the like poles together and they repel each other, right? Right, totally. Now, the Hyperloop has some similarities and some differences. So before we go on... Sure. So if I'm not mistaken, the reason why we use electromagnetic levitation for these trains is because it hugely reduces the resistance, right? Exactly. Like a magnetic train has so much less resistance than a steel wheel on top of a steel track. Right. Of course. Cause there's no hard surfaces touching each other. It's, exactly. It's just air resistance and the resistance caused by the magnet. Right. And you cool. said the key phrase there, the air resistance of the train right. is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Okay. So let's deal with the similarity. First of all, with the hyperloop. Sure. It still uses magnets to propel it forward. Okay. Okay. But it doesn't use magnets for the levitation itself. Okay. And this brings us to our sort of first obvious difference, which is the Hyperloop actually travels through these sealed plastic tubes. Okay. Like kind of like gerbil tunnels. Yeah. Like gerbil tunnels. Exactly. And inside these tunnels is it's a partial vacuum. It's a partial vacuum. So it's half a Roomba. (laughs) Uh, So it's not airless, but uh, it has about one one thousandth of the air that is outside the tube. Okay, cool. So they pump as much of the air out as they can, basically. Exactly. Now, when you take a train and push it through a tube, even if the tube doesn't have a lot of air in it, 
the air is going to build up in front of the train. Right. That makes sense. So what the Hyperloop does, because this would slow the train down, is it actually has an air compressor on the front of each train car. Mm -hmm. And it takes the air from in front of the train and pushes it both behind and below the train. Okay. Now, behind is kind of obvious, right? You're just sort of getting it out of the way. But below the train is interesting because that is actually the levitation mechanism. Okay. So these are called, they call them air casters. And they're kind of like playing air hockey. You know those little jets that make the little air hockey puck levitate? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like that in reverse, right? Okay. So the so hyper... As yeah. if the puck, the air hockey puck was shooting air down instead of the table shooting it up. Precisely. Okay. So Hyperloop takes air from in front of it and shoots it down and causes these trains to levitate inside these little uh, partial vacuum tubes. Very cool. So we've got electromagnetic propulsion forward. Mm -hmm. We've got air resistance counteracted by this air compressor. And we've got a levitation mechanism by uh, shooting air downwards. Okay, cool. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay, cool. That's the Hyperloop. Cool. I mean, it makes sense. It doesn't sound easy. No, it doesn't sound easy. And, you know, Elon Musk, he's a busy guy. He was busy with, you know, creating electric cars and spaceships. (laughs) And so what he did is in 2013, when he came up with this idea... Uh, he actually released it publicly, open source. Right. I remember seeing he basically released the plans like on Twitter. Exactly. Uh, so anyone can build this. Okay. And the cool thing is people have. Right. <laughs> so uh, a number of companies have sprung up to sort of meet this challenge that he set out for the engineering community. Right. And the one we're talking about today with that headline right at the top of the story Uh, is Hyperloop One. Okay. So a number of these headlines suggested that Hyperloop One tested a prototype train. And that's not what happened. So they just tested an engine which runs on this electromagnetic propulsion system. Right. So just one component. One component, right. So they were missing a few. They were missing the tunnel Mm -hmm. and they were missing the system of levitation. Right. Right. And those are kind of important. Of course. So as a result, this engine, as I mentioned at the top, got up to 170 kilometers an hour. Okay. Which sounds impressive, but remember, that's about 15% of the <laughs> speed that they want the Hyperloop to go. Right. So these are very early stages of this test. Now, I assume we're going to get more speed from A, the engine being improved, B, the air resistance being taken away from the vacuum, and C, the, what, what did you call them, air casters? The air casters, the levitation, right? right? The okay. removal of the resistance of something sliding along something else. Right. So they think that by adding in all those three components, they're going to be able to get it up to speed? Hopefully. Okay. So they, they've said that they're going to actually test a full-scale demonstration uh, before the end of the year. What does full-scale mean? That means they're going to add in those other components. They're oh, going to wow. have a tube. It's going to levitate. Um, and yeah. That is really... Before the end of the year? It seems really ambitious, doesn't it? That does seem really <laughs> it ambitious. It seems really ambitious. I don't know. We'll see. Um, and they also say they're going to transport people inside a Hyperloop five years from now. Wow. Right? That's pretty impressive. That's very impressive. And it kind of it kind of strikes at the really interesting thing about the Hyperloop. Does this system of releasing an idea publicly work? Right, because that's not normally what happens. No, no, no. No, I mean the alternative is right. Elon Musk gets a team of engineers, mm-hmm. probably the most brilliant engineers in the world. He's got access to them. Mm-hmm. And he puts them in a room, makes them all sign documents that swear them to secrecy. Right. And they build it. And then they surprise us all with a Hyperloop. At some point in the future, which is patented and you can't do anything with it and you can try to rip it off and people will, but it's, it's a very different system, isn't it? Right. So he's basically trying to crowdsource an engineering project. Exactly. And it's interesting that you mentioned crowdsourcing because Hyperloop One is just one of the companies 
doing this. There's another one um, called Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. Okay. They're working under a 10-year time frame, by the way. So remember, Hyperloop one was five years. They say 10 years. Okay. And they don't actually pay their employees. <laughs> they uh, crowdsource engineering, and all their engineers work in exchange for stock options right. in the company, which, I don't know, it's gamble, but it could it, be fun. It's worked well with software, right? Open source software has been a huge thing. I guess that's true. Look, look at Linux. I guess that's true. It's a whole operating system built for free essentially by an, an insane number of people all over the world. Right. Does the same thing happen? Like, is there some sort of guarantee of eventual monetary reward or is it just purely cred? Not with open source software. It's, okay, yeah, it's that's more about a community oriented feeling of trying to like push forward your field and create better software to use. I guess that's not all bad. No, <laughs> I, it's kind of a, a bit more of a future thinking. It's a bit Star Trek, isn't it? A little bit actually. <laughs> So this company, the crowdsource one, they want to build eight kilometers of test track uh, in between LA and San Francisco. Right. Um, and they hope to do that within the next three years. Cool. Yeah. It's interesting to note that uh, that route between LA and San Francisco mm-hmm. was the first proposed one um, by Elon Musk. Right. As part of those original plans, he released a budget and like a business plan for sending people between LA and San Francisco. Right. Which currently takes six hours to drive uh, on a Hyperloop. That would be 30 minutes. That's pretty amazing. It really is, isn't it? And there's other people in the game, too. Uh, a Canadian company called Transpod uh, out of Toronto. Um, they're a newcomer. Uh, they're going to unveil the vehicle that they want to use this September. Uh, and they're hoping to do Montreal-Toronto <laughs> as a Hyperloop route. Cool. Um, and they're hoping to have approval from Transport Canada in the early 2020s. Wow. So that could be coming to us reasonably soon. Yeah, reasonably soon. Exactly. Um, and then the one final company I'll mention, because um, you can't forget them, is SpaceX. Right. Remember Elon Musk's yeah, company? Yeah, of course. So what they're doing is they're building uh, a kilometer and a half of test track uh, in California. And what they're going to do is they're going to host a competition. Mm-hmm. Um, so any sort of engineering and research team can design a Hyperloop pod and send it through their track and hopefully be the best one. That is extremely cool. It is, isn't it? It's interesting to note that uh, the whole Hyperloop thing, you know, the whole put people in things and then send through a vacuum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's actually not new. This is not Elon Musk's idea. Right. It originated in 1812. Uh, a British inventor uh, named George Mendhurst suggested it. And it was actually built twice. Really? Yeah. Um, so a couple of these railways, um, they're called pneumatic railways. Okay. Um, so just the idea, pneumatic means air. Yep. So one was the Crystal Palace pneumatic railway in London, built in 1864. 1864. Um, so essentially putting people into you know, enclosures and sucking them through a tube was the idea there. Wacky. Uh, and the other one was the Beach Pneumatic Transit, uh, which was in New York City in 1870. Okay, so what happened to those? They weren't really economically viable. They only lasted a couple of years, both of them. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so hopefully with some new technology, we can make this work. Wow, yeah, that's very cool. It should be noted, just sort of as a last little thing here, is the vast majority of media coverage of the Hyperloop is overwhelmingly positive. Mm-hmm. It views this as this huge futuristic idea. And... It isn't all sunshine and roses. This idea is in its very early stages, and there's lots of criticism out there um, of Musk's design being overly optimistic. A lot of people say it will be much slower than he anticipates, um, and a lot of people criticize the economics of it. They think it won't be economically viable. Right. Right? But we'll see how um, how this method of developing a new idea evolves. <laughs> and Totally. Yeah. Would, would you do it if you had a new idea? Would you release it to the public to see if they could create it? Well, I don't know. I feel like if I had an idea that I thought was that groundbreaking, I'd probably want to try and develop it myself. Why? 
because I'd want to be able to A, be in control of it and B, be able to reap the rewards if it was successful. Yeah, totally. Elon Musk is in a unique position to already have so many big successful ventures that he's able to throw this out into the world, right? Right. I guess it's quite a, I mean, people view this as really, you know, altruistic, Mm -hmm. but I mean, it's a privileged thing. Yeah. You, You have to be in a privileged position. Well, no, that's not true. You don't have to be in a privileged position. But he is. But it helps. Yeah, and he hugely. is. And if he wasn't, I don't know. No, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's the Hyperloop. I'm very excited to take a ride in one. Yeah, me too. Okay, so we've got another speed-related story here. All right, sounds good. little theme. Yeah. So before I get into the meat of it, first I wanted to just talk about for scale a little bit here um, about speed in space. Okay. So do you know what the fastest spacecraft we've launched is? I I actually have no idea. I mean, I would intuitively say it's the most recent one because haven't we got better at this over time? Well, actually, it's not the most recent one. Lately, we've mostly been launching spacecraft into near Earth orbit, which is which doesn't require as much thrust as getting stuff out into deep space. Sure. Um, as you might recall, the most recent spacecraft that's gotten a lot of publicity for being pretty far out there is New Horizons. Right, that flew past Pluto. Exactly. We got those yeah. amazing images those last were year. Cool. New Horizons has the record for the fastest launch speed. Okay. At 16 kilometers per second. Ooh, that's fast. And it got a little bit of a speed boost when we did a slingshot maneuver at around Jupiter to get get it up a little faster. Okay. However, it's slowed down quite a bit since then, and it continues to do so. In fact, it's only going about 14 kilometers per second right now. Okay, so just like losing speed over time? Losing speed over time because it's moving further away from the sun and the solar system, which are pulling it back in. Oh, right. So it's like constantly being tugged back towards the center of the solar system. Exactly. And of course, the further away it gets from the the center of the solar system or the center of mass, Mm -hmm. the less that has an effect on it. So the, the slower the rate of decrease of speed. Sure. But it is still slowing down. Yeah. Now, the fastest spacecraft that we've ever got going was the Helios 2 probe, which was sent to look at the sun. Mm -hmm. It hit a max speed of 70 kilometers per second relative to the sun. So that's the fastest one we've got going there. But it's not going out. It's, you know, in the middle of the solar system. Sure. The spacecraft, which is currently going the fastest, is the Voyager 1 probe. Okay, so that was launched ages ago, decades ago. Yeah, it was sent in 1977. Wow. So it's been going for... 38 years, eight <laughs> months, and eight days. Okay, but why is that the fastest then? Because didn't you say it slowed down over time? It has slowed down over time, and it's continuing to do so. But the Voyager 1 had a lot of gravity assists, those sort of slingshot those maneuvers. slingshots around different planets. Exactly, right. as it went out towards the edge of the solar system. Okay. And it got quite a bit of speed up before it got as far away as it is now. Sure. New Horizons, which we talked about earlier, by the time it is as far away as Voyager 1 is now... It'll only be going 13 kilometers per second. Okay, so much slower. Okay, so these are pretty blisteringly fast speeds, right? Totally. We're talking about here that Voyager One is we're talking about 17.3 kilometers per second right now. Yeah. Now that's really fast, but when we're talking about traveling between star systems, Mm -hmm. it's really slow. Yeah, because the distances are really big. The distances are huge. Yeah. So our nearest neighbor star system is Alpha Centauri. Right. Uh, It is a Star system made up of three stars. Okay. Alpha Centauri A, Alpha Centauri B, and the one that is marginally closer than the other two, Proxima Centauri. Right. So Proxima Centauri is 4.22 light years from us. Okay. Which means it would take light 
over four years to get from there to here. And we're going at a fraction the speed of light. Exactly. So at, at Voyager 1's current speed, again, yeah. the fastest probe that we have going right now, yeah. it would take 73,146 years to reach Alpha Centauri. So if we were wanting to reach that star now, we would have had to launch that long before you know modern civilization arose. Exactly, exactly. during Neanderthal times. Right. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen because we did not have that technology at the time. Yeah. So even that Helios 2 probe I mentioned, which is the probe that we've got going the fastest, mm-hmm. it still would take over 18,000 years to get there. Okay, still a little long. Still a pretty long time. Yeah. So what we're talking about today is this new initiative called Breakthrough Starshot. And it's put together by a couple names you might recognize. Stephen Hawking. Right. Yuri Milner. Now that rings a bell. Well, he's a quite well-known Russian entrepreneur and physicist. Okay. Uh, he's been involved in a lot of tech startups as well. Okay. Speaking of tech startups, another more familiar name is Mark Zuckerberg. Totally. Yeah. Captain Facebook is on board here. So those three and a few others have this plan to send probes to Alpha Centauri. Not only that, they think that they can send them off within the next 20 years. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Wait, wait, send them off. So like launch them. Launch but then them. How long will it take us to get there? Uh, by their calculations, about 21 years. Okay, there's a bit of a disconnect here. Because <laughs> yes, we were is. just we were just dealing with 18,000 years. Yes. And now we're at 21. Yes. So I will save you the math and okay. tell you that in order to get a probe from here to Alpha Centauri in 21 years, it'll have to be going at 0.2 the speed of light. So 20% of the speed of light. So how do we do it? Well, their plan... It seems pretty crazy, but we're going to go into into detail on it here. Instead of launching one big probe, Mm -hmm. their idea is to build thousands of tiny little probes. Okay. So each one would only weigh a few grams, which means it doesn't require a lot of energy to accelerate each of them. Right. So I could hold a handful of these probes in my hand. Exactly. In the palm of my hand. They call them star chips. Okay. And each star chip is made out of two main parts, a light sail and then the chip that has the components. So a light sail is one of those things that you can like put out in space and it propels something along, right? Yeah, exactly. The idea behind a light sail is that it uses the energy delivered by photons to, to move an object. Sure. And because the chip part is so light, it's a feasible method of propulsion. Sure. So the, the chip itself would contain cameras, processors, photon thrusters, and a battery. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple stuff. Yeah. But cameras in there, meaning we'll be able to take pictures of whatever we get to. Yeah, that sounds handy. And then send them back, I assume? Um, yeah, the pictures would be able to be sent back. So sure. there's the transmitter on there. Yeah. The light sail part mm-hmm. would be about four meters by four meters and made out of probably a graphene-based material. Okay, so that's pretty big for a tiny, you know, gram chip. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, we still need to accelerate this thing up to 20% the speed of light. Yeah, how do we do that? Well, this is the really, really crazy part. This project calls for a massive array of ground-based lasers. So that means building a facility somewhere on Earth with at least hundreds of lasers pointed up at the sky. So on initial launch, a mothership would launch from Earth in the conventional sense, Mm -hmm. carrying all of these starships up to a high altitude orbit above Earth. Okay. It would then deploy them one by one. And as each one was deployed, its sail would come out, and then the laser array down on Earth would kick into gear. (laughs) Would 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 hit it from Earth? Yes. And then... So we would fire these lasers aiming perfectly at that four meter by four meter sail to accelerate target. them. Yeah. <laughs> one at a time, accelerate them up to that target speed. Wow. Which would happen over 10 minutes. 
Okay, that's really fast. It's incredibly fast. Get up to 0.2 the speed of light. That's yeah. amazing. So that means delivering a terajoule of laser energy to each sail. Yeah, because that's a lot of yeah. ter- terajoule in 10 minutes. That's a lot of power. Yeah, it's a yeah. huge amount of power. Yeah. Um, light propulsion requires a lot of power because you can only get a few newtons of thrust, which is really not too much, mm-hmm. for a laser that has the power output of, for example, a small nuclear power plant. Right. Okay. Th- that's why these chips have to be so tiny. So the laser array that we're talking about here would have to be about a 100 gigawatt array. Okay, that sounds like a lot. It, it's a huge amount. It would yeah. be the equivalent of hundreds of large nuclear reactors. Wow. Like okay. that, That's the amount of power we're talking about. Okay, yikes. So putting the energy problem aside for the moment, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of other really difficult issues to get through here. Okay. For example, focusing the lasers is really tough. Right, because this is a very small target, as I mentioned. It's a really small target. It's going to be really far away. Yeah, because over the course of 10 minutes, we're accelerating it up to 20% the speed of light. And I haven't done the exact math, but by minute nine, this thing is going to be pretty far away. Totally. And when firing lasers up at objects in space, we deal with a lot of atmospheric turbulence, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Air moves around and essentially warps the direction of the light the light is effectively being warped by the fact that it's not a consistent perfectly uniform block of air that it's traveling through from earth's surface to totally far from it yeah Yeah, exactly it's really hard to focus these Mm. we're also talking about not just one laser but millions of lasers all focused together wow yeah yeah it's it's a pretty crazy sounding project yeah it is yeah not only that but the trip from Earth to Alpha Centauri is not a particularly easy one. Right. These probes would have to go through a lot of space dust and other particulate matter on the way there. Totally, which can be dangerous to a probe that's that tiny. Hugely dangerous. Or a light sail, which is, I'm assuming, quite thin. Very fragile. Yeah. Yeah. So on one hand, they're trying to make these probes as durable as possible. Yeah. But on the other hand, that's one of the reasons why they're sending possibly around a thousand of them oh so you can lose a few yeah or they're many. assuming that a lot of them aren't going to make the trip yeah totally now a big question is what, what is the point of this that is actually a really good question yeah why send probes to alpha centauri yeah particularly tiny probes i mean mm-hmm. we can't bring back samples we, we're not sending a rover onto any planet no now with space travel yeah part of the answer is always because we want to tr- see if we can and we're curious totally and I'm, I'm all for that answer. That's just, that is a huge part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and St- Stephen Hawking has always been very vocal about his desire to get to the stars. Yeah, absolutely. He believes that humanity was, you know, born to fly, essentially. On a more concrete level, the most critical component of these starships that they're flying out is the cameras. They're right. talking about at least two megapixel cameras on the, each of these. Okay. Which means they'd have pretty good resolution for photography. Mm-hmm. Their hope is that in the, in the habitable zones mm-hmm. in these star systems, yeah. the Goldilocks zone, as it's often referred to, yeah. there are hopefully some planets. Right. And they're hoping that these starships can get photographs of the planets with enough resolution to be able to make out surface features. Totally. Wow. That's amazing. It is amazing, right? Yeah. So what we're literally talking about here is within 45 years, having photographs of the surface of possibly habitable planets in another star system. That's incredible. Yeah, because we also can't forget that it's going to take over four years to even get those photos back once they arrive. We won't even know if they made it successfully for four years. Right, we'll have no communication with them. Yeah, exactly. For four years. And that's how long the the fastest signal in the world can't travel faster than speed speed of light. light. 
Right. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, that's so exciting and so frustrating all at the same time. Hugely. Another neat thing about this story is that it's similar in another way to your story about the Hyperloop. Okay. In that this is a very collaborative project. On one level, it's collaborative because it's a huge collaboration between Silicon Valley and the space exploration community. Yeah. They seem to be working together a lot these days. Exactly. There's this hope that we can combine the tech world with the space exploration and physics world. This project is very overtly collaborative between those different areas Mm -hmm. because you've literally got Stephen Hawking and Mark Zuckerberg sitting at the same table discussing this stuff. One of the other cool parts of it is that they're hoping to post a lot of their research online in the public domain to allow the world's scientists and our other best minds to help solve the still enormous challenges. Right. Okay. So, for example, a lot of the materials that would need to go into building these starships, both the light sail and the chip itself, Mm -hmm. don't really exist in off-the-shelf solutions right now. Gotcha. They're experimental materials. Mm -hmm. So... Hopefully, by getting everyone on board all over the world, we'll be able to accelerate the speed at which we can actually get to launching and building these things. Right now, they have an initial funding of $100 million US, Mm -hmm. which is pretty decent to start with. That sounds really impressive, yeah. (laughs) However, the final mission cost is estimated to be between 5 and 10 billion. Okay. So... So they got 1%. Exactly. They've got 1% of it right now. All right. However, this has been getting a lot of press online and Mm -hmm. people have been really sharing it on social media. It's something that excites people. Yeah. Uh, That's an undeniable thing is we love the idea of exploring this far away from our home. Getting to another star. There's like a mental barrier there that this is breaking. Yeah. Like it's something that we haven't really even been thinking about. We haven't really considered it. No, everyone's been so focused on getting to the planets in our solar system. Yeah. Not to discount exploring the planets in our solar system. Mm-hmm. In fact, the minds behind this project think that if these starships are successful, mm-hmm. they could be used to monitor different parts of our solar system. Okay. Like send a rapid probe to Jupiter type thing? Exactly. Because we could launch them en masse mm-hmm. and with that laser array, send them off wherever they need to go to all different parts of the solar system where they could take photos and keep an eye on things. Right. You could use the same laser array. Mm-hmm. So they envision a a world where our whole solar system is full of these tiny little probes that can watch for changes on other planets or incoming orbital bodies or anything else. Interesting. That's basically, that's it. That's Breakthrough Starshot. Wow. That's awesome. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah, no worries. that's it for this week uh we will be back in two weeks with our next episode until then check us out online our website is doubleblindscience.com you can also follow us on twitter at doubleblindsci thanks so much cheers see you in two weeks Dude, we're, we're recording. You can't eat chips while we're recording. I've don't you remember heard. that? No, I don't. You <laughs> clearly don't. We haven't we haven't done this in a long time. Okay, so it's been a while. Um, 